I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23, Acts chapter 12. We're looking at kind of the episode of Herod Agrippa, who put to death the Apostle James and tried to put to death the Apostle Peter. But he was rescued by an angel of God in response to the prayers of God's people at uh, the home of the mother of uh, John Mark. So this particular mother, this is not Mother's Day uh, message, but uh, that particular mother hosted a prayer meeting and God used that to save one uh, one of His apostles. In Acts chapter 12, I'll start reading in verse 18. And this is right after that Peter had been miraculously delivered from prison. And Herod had... Well, we'll find out what happens. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened. What could have become of Peter? And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. For with one accord they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, we find in this uh, amazing passage that after uh, King Herod realized that Peter had escaped, he went and examined the soldiers, the guards in verse 19, And because from his perspective they have failed in their duty and somehow Peter had escaped under their watch, they were guilty now of receiving the punishment that the escaped prisoner should have received, so they were executed. He had them put to death. Right or wrong, however you look at it, uh, they were were sentenced to death and uh, and he, he had them executed. But Herod himself is now going to go from the executor to the executed himself. And this passage tells us how did this happen and what we need to learn from this passage as a church living in the 21st century. Well, let's begin by looking at Herod's problem with Tyre and Sidon that we read about in verse 20. Now, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, and with one accord, they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. 
So the nature of the conflict, we don't know exactly what caused Herod to be upset with them, but we're told in verse 20 that he was very angry. He was violently angry and furious with the people, probably the leaders of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are two Syrian cities right to the north of Israel. They're along the coast, the Mediterranean coast. But apparently they had greatly offended Herod, again for reasons that we don't know, And Herod, no doubt, was retaliating to get their attention. Notice at the end of the verse, verse 20, it says, their country was fed by the king's country. And probably what was going on is that these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, were dependent upon Galilean corn and grain as their main food supply. Because Galilee and Judah were kind of the the breadbasket for that whole area. And apparently the king, King Herod, had ordered a ban on the trade with Tyre and Sidon. Maybe a wheat embargo. Maybe tariffs like Trump is trying to do on China. Tariffs to make it more expensive and economically uh, difficult for them. To bring about an economic disaster because he was so angry with them. For whatever they had done to offend him. And so they realize that their food supply comes from basically the king's country. And now that's being cut off. So they need to move quick to try to remedy the the whole solution. So they went over, blast us, the king's chamberlain in verse 20. The king's chamberlain, that's a word that speaks to the fact that this man blast us was kind of like a glorified butler. He was a private secretary to Herod. He was the overseer of his private matters, so he had a lot of influence and responsibility in in, uh, Herod's government. They won him over, uh, possibly by a bribe, we don't know, but he had apparently arranged an opportunity for them to meet with Herod and to try to ask for peace. And so then we're set up in verse 21 and 22. Uh, Herod had gone to Caesarea. Remember, Caesarea is kind of the, uh, the capital city for the, the Roman district. Uh, Caesarea is where um, King Herod the Great had built a, a huge palace. It was a Roman city. It had a, uh, a theater in it. It had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It had a place for horse and chariot races it was just it was kind of the capital of that province that Roman province of Judea so Herod has now gone there and we're told by Josephus who who talks about this exact same event in some of his writings Josephus was the first century Jewish historian he says that on this day Herod had gone up to the theater to kind of launch a festival in honor of Caesar, Claudius, who is back in Rome. Because Herod got his authority to rule only when he's in the good graces of Rome. Uh, When he's uh, sending in the taxes and he's keeping all these rowdy Jews at bay, then he gets to hold on to his power. 
So in order to do that, he, from time to time, uh, he would hold these great festivals honoring Caesar to try to stay in the, in the good graces of Caesar. So he's in Caesarea. He's starting a festival to honor Caesar with, the, with athletic games and a large number of provincial officers are there, other high-ranking people. And the people from Tyre and Sidon are there, probably on the front row of this uh, address that he's about to give them in the theater. Now the theater, if you remember a few weeks ago, I showed you a picture of the ruins of the theater that's in Caesarea. So it's, it's pointing west. So the stage is on the west side and then all the, the bleachers holding thousands of people uh, is on the east side. So all these people are in the, gal- in the gallery or in the bleachers and Herod comes up and he sits down on the stage and he begins to make an address. Now we don't know what he's saying in the address. Maybe he's, uh, the leaders have already gotten to him and they've made peace terms and maybe he's announcing the peace terms. I don't know. But it says that when he walked out on the stage, according to Josephus, uh, his royal garment that Luke mentions here uh, in verse 21 Josephus says was a garment that was embedded with all this silver in it. So that it's in the morning and the sun is shining directly on him from from the east. He's walking out on the stage getting ready to take a seat. And his royal garment is just flashing. It looks like a, a sparkler on the 4th of July. And he's just gleaming as the sun is shining and that silver in his garment is sparkling all over and it just, it looks like the majestic, uh, 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 theophany of a god or something like that. Uh, the Shekinah glory, if you will, almost. And so he's sparkling there and the people, according to Josephus, it's such a, a bright, shining, flashing light, it almost blinds them. And they're so overwhelmed with His majestic and divine appearance that they began to cry out, the voice of a God and not of a man. So you can kind of picture this whole situation going on. Now whether they were genuinely amazed due to their own superstitious and idolatrous nature, or rather just laying on a very thick and heavy layer of flattery because they want their food back, and so they've got to butter this guy up they began to, to uh, pour out this flattery on him that when he starts to speak, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And then we're told in verse uh, 23 that the, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. So here's... King Herod on the stage and he's giving this address and suddenly the people primarily from Tyre and Sidon they may be standing up and they're shouting out the voice of a God and not of a man. And what he does is he does not give God that glory. He just, he basks in the praise. He just soaks it in. He soaks up the praise with no humility No rebuke to his flatterers. No turning praise to God. And it all indicates that he was a man full of pride. Full of self-exaltation. Full of self-idolatry. The love of praise. 
And not only had he put James to death and tried to put Peter to death because he wanted the people to praise him. He wanted the Jews to praise him and to get in good graces with him so he could maintain his own authority and power. But it just shows that this is what a proud heart lives for. To be exalted, to be idolized and worshipped, to be elevated. Unlike Paul and Barnabas who... Later in Acts 14, when we get there, as the pagans tried to worship Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that is in them. That's not how Herod responded. Herod instead soaked it up like a cold-blooded lizard who spreads out on a rock to bask in and to soak up the warmth of the morning sun. That's who Herod is. He's a cold-blooded lizard soaking up the praise and adoration of the people like a lizard soaks up the warmth. Well, of course, God then strikes him immediately because he did not give God the glory. He took the glory to himself. And he was eaten by worms and he died. I think uh, the Spirit of God has included this passage in Scripture uh, for the benefit and blessing of the church to remind us not only of what the sin of pride is, but just the danger of the sin of pride. We see that uh, this immediately with Herod, uh, the idea that he's eaten by worms is uh, is not the way you want to go. Luke was a physician. And by examining the evidence of how Herod died, he concluded that this was what caused his death. Uh, We are told that back in this day, You could have intestinal roundworms that could be about a foot and a half long and that could ball up on the inside causing all kinds of destruction and harm. It's kind of interesting that the worms are often identified as messengers of death or corruption. Remember back in the Old Testament in Exodus 16, if they went out and they gathered up the manna in the morning but they did not obey God and eat all the manna, but tried to save some for the next day, what would happen to the manna? It would breed worms and become foul. So that the worms becomes a messenger of judgment, if you will, upon their disobedience. We also know when Jonah sat outside of Nineveh after he had preached to them, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. And he waited to see if God would destroy them or show them mercy. And the Lord appointed a plant to grow up over his head because it was hot and the sun was being down on his head. And and the plant gave him some shade. And Jonah's just sitting there and, and he wants God's wrath, not God's mercy upon the Ninevites. And then God appointed a worm. And the worm devoured the plant. And the plant died and withered. And the sun beat down on Jonah's angry head again as God disciplines him for his hard attitude 
of pride and arrogance and, and a racist attitude. We also know that God appoints a ministry of the worm in hell. And there's a bit of an irony here because Herod is going to leave this life because he is consumed by worms and enter the next life where his soul and eventually his body will be forever consumed by worms. Remember what Jesus Himself uh, said in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. He speaks of hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So worms are often identified with God's judgment and God's wrath. So fully does Christ carry the full curse and wrath of God for His people. That Psalm 22 verse 6 prophetically speaks of our Savior dying on the cross, bearing even this aspect of God's judgment when He says on the cross prophetically through David, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So thank God that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation There is no judgment. There is no worm in eternity for us. Now again, Josephus' account says that right when Herod was stricken, he was carried off the stage. He suffered continuously for five days from the pain in his belly. Then he died at the age of 54 in the seventh year of his reign, according to Josephus in his Antiquities. Again, why this very sobering and serious and kind of a gory end to Herod's life where the executor now becomes the executed because of the sin of pride. And I think it's to remind us, all of us, that though the work of common grace can subdue pride in the heart of even an unbeliever to a degree, And though saving grace can break the power of reigning sin of pride in our life, we still wrestle with pride. We still struggle with pride. It affects our relationships. It undermines our work. It uh, brings all kinds of troubles in our life. And I think there are times when, when we need to learn what the Spirit of God is communicating to us. Beware of your pride. Beware of of Herod. You remember, even with Lot's wife, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And I think we can almost say here, remember Herod's pride. Look what it did to him. May God help root that out of us. What I want to do is just kind of step back and maybe do a flyover at about 30,000 feet from a biblical perspective and look at the sin of pride. And again, reminding ourselves of just what I think we need to learn and be reminded of about this terrible sin that still grows within our hearts today. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Let's begin by looking at the origin of this sin. Isaiah chapter 14. And as you may recall, this is a a passage where the, the prophet is speaking God's word of judgment upon the king of Babylon. King of Babylon was a man 
who was guilty of much sin. But in laying out his sin, there seems to be a dual fulfillment to this prophetic word. So that not only is the king of Babylon being indicted for his sin, but also it seems to reflect the very sin of an angel and ultimately describe for us the sin that caused Satan to revolt against God and to fall out, be cast out of heaven. We begin in Isaiah 14, and if you look at verse 12, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? Now all the way back in verse 4, we're told this is a taunt against the king of Babylon. But in verse 12, he is described as falling from heaven, and he's described as, O star of the morning, Son of the dawn. Now I'm reading from the New American Standard. Your star of the morning may have a different phrase. O shining one. But it's interesting in the Latin Vulgate, this particular expression, O star of the morning, is the name Lucifer. That's how the Latin Vulgate translates it. And so many understand that this is actually also prophetic of the fall of Lucifer out of heaven because of his sin. Well, let's look at the nature of his sin. Look at verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Verse 14. So you can see that somehow in the heart of the, of the king of Babylon and also in the heart of Lucifer, somehow, mysteriously, there arose this, this sin, this arrogant pride that wanted to exalt him to the role of God. And even though he was created righteous and holy, sin was found in him. If you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28, something similar, starting in verse 2, it's indicting the leader or the king of Tyre, who also becomes a type of Satan. Ezekiel 28 verse 2, and here it says that judgment will come upon him because your heart is lifted up. That's pride. And you have said, I am a God and you make yourself like the heart of God. And then dropping down verse 12, I'm kind of highlighting some, some phrases there. He had the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom and beauty and uh, perfect in beauty. And that was true of, of uh, Satan before he fell. He was the highest of the angels. He was the most powerful, the most beautiful of the angels. And all of that went somehow went to his his mind, and he began to be puffed up with pride so that he wanted to be like God. In verse 14, he's described as the anointed cherub. And a cherub is an angel. So that's why we see this having a dual fulfillment, not only the, the king of Tyre, but also of Lucifer, the, the angel who became Satan. Verse 15 you were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. 
So when we talk about Herod's pride, how did Herod become such a proud man? Well, the very beginning of pride in the universe is with Lucifer, who becomes Satan. That in some insane, mysterious way, because of his own beauty, his own power, exalted himself and and coveted the throne of God. Full of pride. Full of self-exaltation. Full of self-idolatry. I deserve to be God. And of course, God cast him out of heaven. And not only Satan, but his, his sin of pride and arrogance was so infectious that a third of the angelic host followed him in his rebellion and mutiny against God. So they were cast out. And then we come to Genesis 3, verse 5 and 6. So now this cursed and fallen angel comes down to earth and begins to tempt mankind who are created in the image of God. Satan comes down and tempts Eve. He's trying to to tempt her to sin, to create a, a coup, a revolution, a mutiny against God. And it's interesting that Satan will tempt Eve with the very same sin that he clutches within his own soul. A desire to be like God. A desire to be praised and exalted and and to know right from wrong. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 5, the serpent comes to Eve and says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like who? God. You will be like God, Eve. Knowing good from evil. You will be like God. And then in the next verse, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so that appealed to the lust of her flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that is, to be like God, to know good and evil, that she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So Eve and Adam fell due to pride, the desire to be like God, self-idolatry, self-exaltation, self-glory. And that is why we are now Born into this world, not innocent. We're not born into this world good. We're born sinners. And pride is a core aspect of our depraved nature. That's why John calls us, calls there's only two kinds of people in the world. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And a child of the devil reflects the nature of the devil. And the nature of Satan is, is pride and arrogance and self-idolatry. And that is reflected within us. As the image of God has been distorted, the image of Satan now lives in us. That's why we we wrestle so much with pride. We are children of the devil. We We reflect the nature of our spiritual father, Satan, apart from the redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Hooker wrote that pride is a vice which cleaves so fast unto the hearts of men that if we were to strip ourselves of all faults one by one, 
we should undoubtedly find that pride is the very last and the hardest sin to put off. So, that's how sin came into the universe. What does God think about pride? Well, He hates it. He hates pride. Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17 There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And what's number one on the list? Numero uno. Haughty eyes. Proud, arrogant eyes. That's number one. God hates pride. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, the wisdom of God says... The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate, says God. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. So now you can understand why God judged Herod because of the pride and the self-idolatry and just soaking in the praise. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. James, not the one who was put to death, but the Lord's half-brother who wrote the epistle to James, chapter 4, verse 6, quotes from Proverbs that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will oppose pride. So how is pride manifested? We know where it originated. It came into the world through Satan and the fallen angels who tempted Adam and Eve who were cursed with, with a sin nature that is dominated with a, the, the moral backbone of pride because we are children of the devil. We all have that pride in us. So what does pride look like? What does it sound like? How does it act? We can say that pride, we, again, we find it in everyone and it's everywhere. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, the demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one hour before us. It is so woven into the very warp and woof of our nature that till we are wrapped in our own burial sheets, we shall never hear the last of it. In other words, Spurgeon says, you're going to wrestle with pride in your heart until the day you die. C.S. Lewis said, pride is the one vice of which no man in the world is free of and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. We see pride in other people. Oh yeah, I see your pride. But I'm blind to my pride. And God only knows the, the, the stinkweed of pride that I get a regular s- smell of in my own life. Richard Baxter said, Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly, subtle, and insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. And Calvin summed up the delusion of our pride the self-deception of our pride when he said, we hop around like toads and imagine ourselves gliding gracefully like a racing stallion. Pride is found in everyone. 
And it's found everywhere. It's found in our marriages. In our relationships between husband and wives. It's found in our families. Parents and children. Both sides can be guilty of pride. Disobedience and, re- and disrespect of parents. Kids rooted in pride. You can find pride on the job. You can find pride on the playground. You can find it at home. You can find it at school. You can find it at church where you find it in the pew and you find it in the pulpit. You find pride everywhere. Pride is ubiquitous. It's omnipresent. And we're all born with it. So I said earlier, babies are are born with sin. They're born with pride. Senior citizens die with pride. And every stage of life in between manifests a constant battle with pride. Babies reveal the root of pride in their own sinful little hearts in that they're, they're totally self-centered. Now I know our babies are little angels. And, and I know they are just as innocent as they can be until their first temper tantrum. And then when you begin to realize that kid, that little baby, they're so sweet looking, but... I mean, the, the dirty diapers ought to give something away to you. That not, but they, they, when they want something, they want it right then and there. If it's in the middle of the night, parents, come on, jump on it. Whatever it may be, they are totally fixated upon themselves. Except your children, of course. That's the only exception. That's why I think it was Jonathan Edwards that first referred to little babies as little vipers. And then someone else called them little vipers in diapers. And I think it was uh, Vody Bachman, who I, I would assume somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said one of the reasons that God makes human babies so small is so that they won't kill their parents in their sleep. Because there is such a, a self-centered pride, and when they don't get their way, you know, I mean, their little faces just scream, and you just see it. It's in our nature and we never, not even regeneration, not even salvation, not even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, totally eradicates pride out of our life because there's that abiding principle of the flesh that is not yet totally uh, dealt with. The law of the toddler. You know, just spend, spend an hour or so in the toddler room here at church. You know, kids are playing with the toys. What's in one kid that's holding a toy? What's in my hand belongs to me. What's in your hand belongs to me too. If I put my toy down on the ground and you look at my toy, that toy belongs to me, not to you. If you come up and pick up my toy and start playing with it, I can take that toy from you because it's my toy, not yours. And on and on it goes. You just see that little selfishness just bubbling up on the inside of them. You see, pride is a spiritual cancer that we are conceived with and it lives in our hearts. And though by God's grace it can be subdued to a degree, again, He breaks the power of reigning sin. And it may not no longer reign in our life, but it still will manifest itself because it's not totally eradicated until we're glorified. So what does pride do? Well, a number of things. Pride will forget God. That's one of the aspects of pride. Remember Moses uh, warned Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that when he gives in the promised land and they go in the promised land, they defeat their enemies. 
and they begin to enjoy the produce of the ground, the abundant crops, the minerals in the ground. They build good homes and live in them. And their flocks multiply and their silver and gold multiply. He says, beware that your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and provided for you those 40 years in the wilderness and brought you into this good land and gave you all that you have. Beware that you forget God. Otherwise you will say, it's my power and the strength of my hand that made me this wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14 and following. See, a proud heart is slow to acknowledge God for their blessings. We just assume that I earned it. Pride exalts self for its blessings rather than God. Remember what James told us in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given. Every good thing. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So a proud heart, when you're struggling with pride, you won't be thanking God regularly for your blessings. Well, forget God. Now tell me you don't wrestle with pride. When was the last time you thanked God for your blessings? See, we all struggle with that. Another characteristic manifestation of pride is that it always thinks it's right. It's blind to its own sin. Though Scripture tells us that we have hidden faults, but I just don't acknowledge that I have them. I can see your hidden faults. I mean, golly, they're just in neon lights flashing at me. But I don't have any. And our hearts are more deceitful than all else and incurably sick, Jeremiah tells us. And yet we get into arguments with people. We have differences. We have conflicts. And all we do is defend ourselves. Asserting our own righteousness. That we're in the right. The other person's in the wrong. That's why I say we all have a black belt in self-defense. You come at me and... You know, I will fight you off and defend myself. You're the guilty one, not me. You're the one in the wrong, not me. That's pride. That's pride that refuses to, to think that I could have done anything wrong. No, it's, all, it's the other person. A proud heart thinks it's always right. Pride asserts in this vein its rights over other people. We have a conflict. Well, I, I'm... I have the right to this. And a proud heart is so quick to affirm, I've got this right. And expect that other people have to bow to us because of my rights. They're wrong in doing it, not me. And because a proud heart thinks it's always right, a proud heart will rarely, if ever, apologize when they're guilty of wrongdoing. It may be... uh, convinced that they did nothing wrong, that the other people just need to get over it. But a proud heart will not acknowledge and humble themselves and go and apologize to the other person. 
Pride is defiant when corrected even. As Proverbs says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And we're just convinced that I'm in the right, you're in the wrong. You, you can come and apologize to me. I don't need to apologize to you. I didn't do anything wrong. Another manifestation of pride is that it uh, desires to, to rule oneself. Don't tell me how to live my life. It's been said that sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is making one's own rules. And that's really what we want to do. I don't want to live by God's rules. They're too restrictive. No, I want to, I want to determine what's right for me. I want to determine the laws that I live by. That's what pride does. Makes its own rules. It wants to rule self. That's why when Timothy McVeigh, right before he was executed, I read that the last thing that he wrote out was the poem Invictus. That particular poem by William Ernest Henley, in Latin, Invictus means unconquered. And that was his dying words before he was executed. Unconquered. And this is one of the stanzas that he wrote. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, moments after they pulled the switch on him, he realized just how wrong he actually was. A proud heart wants to rule self. I can, I can run my life better than God can. My rules are better than God's rules. And children, you've got to guard your hearts against this. Rebelling against parents. It's part of that proud attitude that can come up so quickly. You see, pride at its nature is a desire for self-worship, self-idolatry. To pull down God from His throne and to exalt ourselves on His throne in His place. Just as Satan tried to do. Pride takes the glory to self like Herod and steals glory from God. And yet God says in Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is My name. I will not give My glory to another so that those who seek to steal His glory will one day meet with His wrath. That's what happened with Herod. You want to rule your life? You want to live it the way you want to live it? God will let you do that for a period of time. But you'll regret it in the end. So what are the consequences of pride? Well, we saw with Herod, he was eaten by worms. He was struck down dead. God doesn't always immediately execute pride. But we didn't know several things from Proverbs that pride goes before the fall. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29 verse 23 A man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 15.25 The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. You see what we're learning from this. I think the Spirit of God would have us to recognize that, you know, I see Herod, 
I see what He did. I see how God dealt with Him. But oh God, I have that sin in my heart as well. And though through the blood of Christ you've taken away my hell and you've taken away the condemnation, but as my loving Heavenly Father, you will still discipline me for pride if I don't deal with it. And I still wrestle with it. So pride goes before the fall. This is why we need to be repenting of our pride. Because God, as believers, God the Father may deal with us in love, but it may be hurtful in, uh, in addressing pride that is not uh, repented of. The sin of pride also separates from God eternally for the lost and even experientially at times for the believer. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So when, when Lucifer sinned, and lusted in pride for the throne of God, God separated him and cast him out of heaven. When Adam and Eve lusted, wanting to be like God and to know good and evil and to have that, 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 that role of God, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden. Sin separates. When Israel fell into idolatry and no longer worshipped God, God cast them out of the promised land. Sin separates. Now as a believer, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God for that. But still on a practical level, God can seem distanced to me if I allow pride to grow in my heart and I don't sense His nearness. Examples of God's judgment on pride, Pharaoh and his proud, hardened heart, Endured ten plagues which devastated his kingdom, his land, his crops, his livestock, his army, and his, and his own personal family. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, thought, well, God has given us His recipe for incense, but we can improve on God's laws. So they made their own strange fire, and God struck them down with fire from heaven and consumed them because of their pride. Of course, the classic example is King Nebuchadnezzar who stood on the balcony of his palace and he says, is this not Babylon the Great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Just give me praise. Somebody give me praise. You know, is his attitude. And yet, God drove him from mankind and turned the king into a cow, basically, making him eat grass like cattle for seven years, where his body was drenched with the dew from heaven, his hair had grown out long like eagle's feathers, and his fingernails like, like talons, like a bird's claws, because of his pride until he recognized that it's the Lord God who rules from heaven and is sovereign over kings and dominions and kingdoms. And then God restored him. But it was pride that sent him out into the field. King Uzziah became proud, acted corruptly, 
thought he could go into the temple and burn incense, which was the prerogative of only of the priests. And when the priest came and confronted him, he became so enraged and God struck King Uzziah with leprosy on his forehead and he stayed a leper until the day of his death because of pride. So I think what the Spirit of God is warning us today as God's people who are forgiven of all of our sins that there's still a worm of pride that dwells within our hearts. Beware of that pride. In the attitude that you have towards your family members, towards your friends, towards people in the church, beware of that pride because it's always destructive. It will ruin not only relationships, but it will ruin you. The remedy for pride is pretty obvious, isn't it? A humble, heartfelt confession of our sins to God first and then to whomever we have sinned against. A humble confession. Acknowledging our pride. Acknowledging it in thought to God. If in words and deeds to whoever also we have offended by our pride. And to humbly confess it. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you've offended them. Regardless of who's right and wrong on this kind of day, you've offended your brother. Something you said, something you did. Leave your offering there before the altar. Run out of the church service. And you go and immediately be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship God. In other words, if you're dealing with pride and you're not, uh, uh, if you're not seeking the reconciliation of it, don't even come and worship God. Go deal with your sin first and then come and worship God. That's what Christ says about it. Don't delay. Deal with it quickly. Because once that starts to grow and fester, it will continue to produce a, uh, a damage and corruption within our own hearts. That's why Jesus later on in the Sermon on the Mount had to warn His his disciples about judging others. You're wrong. I'm right. He says in Matthew 7, be careful about judging others while being a hypocrite yourself because you're blind to your own sin. He says, first take the beam out of your own eye. You mean I've got a beam in my eye? Yeah, you've got a beam in your eye. You don't see it. But you've got a beam in your eye. Take the log, the telephone pole, out of your eye, and then you can go take the little speck out of your brother's eye. No, you deal with yourself first. You deal with your pride first. And then go and try to help someone. Don't try to go take out their speck with the beam in your own eye. It's not going to work. You see, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand? Oh God, show me my pride. And wherever I have caused offense, Lord, whether I see it or not, give, it that, give me the humility to go and be reconciled. Well, in conclusion from this passage, there's two things I want to quickly say in wrapping up. The first is, let the rulers of the nations take heed. There is a payday someday for wicked rulers like King Herod who break God's laws and persecute God's people. 
See, all dictators who persecute Christians, they will one day stand before God and give an account. And they may have power today. And they may have wealth today. But God commands the pestilence and the worm. Beware of how you treat God's people. God raises up kings and brings them down. And Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. And Herod learned the harder way. Be careful how you treat Christ's church. He takes it personally. And God does not punish sin at the end of every day, but He will punish every sin on the last day. I think we need to warn our own Congress today that's trying to pass the Equality Act. If you heard about that, I sent it out in one of my Allen's Alerts emails. That would ban all discrimination against gender based on gender identity or sexual orientation. Which in effect would criminalize Christianity and any religion that does not hire, serve, and promote the LGBT agenda and lifestyle. The Equality Act. You ought to write your, your legislators and tell them to vote against it. It's already had plenty in the House already to pass it. They're getting close to getting enough in the Senate. And I don't know if Trump, Trump will sign it or not. He's kind of wobbly on that issue himself, it seems like at times. But Christianity will suffer. Our government will use a law like this to bring greater persecution against the church. And I think the Word of God says, and King Herod would certainly remind them, you rulers of the nations, you take heed if you offend one of my little ones on this earth, because there is a payday someday, and you will stand before God and give an account. And the last lesson is in response to Herod's sin of pride and the way God judged him because of his sin. How we need to seek after the virtue of humility within our hearts. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're reminded of the prophet Micah who tells us, and what does God require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It was probably Peter's pride and self-confidence when he said to Jesus, Jesus, though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away from you. And then later on, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, Lord. And it was probably because of Peter's pride and self-confidence that Jesus allowed him to be sifted by Satan. Pride comes before the fall. I close with a quote by Jonathan Edwards. If we consider ourselves as followers of the meek and lowly and crucified Jesus... We shall walk humbly before God and men all the days of our life on earth. Seek to know God. Confess your nothingness and your ill desert before Him. Distrust yourself. Renounce all self-glory and yield yourself heartily with all of your heart 
to His will and service. Avoid all arrogant and stubborn and self-justifying behavior and strive for more and more of the humble spirit that Christ manifested while He was on earth. Because humility is one of the most essential and distinguishing traits in all true piety. As we have seen the pride and the downfall of King Herod, may the Spirit of God warn us that we are not aloof from that sin ourselves. It dwells within us and it shows itself more often than what we ever care to acknowledge. But may the Spirit of God make us more like our meek and humble Jesus, our Lord and Savior and reflect His humility. And when our pride does get the upper hand, and we offend someone, or say something, or do something, let us be quick to humble our pride and go into seek reconciliation with those that we've harmed. And this is the way that God would have us to respond, I believe, from Herod's pride and Herod's worm. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the Word of God that deals with such treachery and such devastating sins as the sin of pride. Just to remind us that, Lord, we struggle with it still. And though as believers in Jesus Christ, we rejoice that, Lord, You have cast our sins behind Your back as far as the east is from the west, that, Lord, though they were scarlet, You have washed them white as snow. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That Christ suffered for all of our pride and all of our other wicked sins that we're guilty of. But yet, Lord, as Your children, we want to show forth Your character and Your nature. And we struggle. And we fight. And we sometimes lose. So, Father, grant us the grace of humility that we might be more like Jesus Christ and to show His character to a world dead in their trespasses and sins who need a Savior, and there's only one, Jesus, the sinless Son of Man, Son of God, who came and died on Calvary's cross to suffer the full penalty of all of our sins, that whoever repents and comes to Him in simple faith can be forgiven and justified in God's sight and have the confident hope of eternity with You forever. O Lord, in response to that gift, may we walk humbly before You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.